Well, in my preparations this last week, I came across one of history's greatest paintings, perhaps, Raphael's Transfiguration. Uh, Raphael, he, he died an early death in his 30s, even died before having finished the painting, but he still counted it as perhaps his, his magnum opus. He, he hung it over his deathbed because he was so particularly proud of it. Must have made such an impression among others because one of his students ended up taking up the painting after his death and putting some finishing touches on it. And having looked at it a few times this past week, I feel it captures this, this scene that we're about to look at this morning rather well. Of course, as the painting implies, it depicts the transfiguration, the transfiguration of Christ that we looked at last week. It has Christ atop a mountain radiating with light and glory, Moses and Elijah at either side. His disciples are bowing down in reverence and adoration and awe of the great majesty of the Christ. But then that scene is put in such stark contrast with the scene just below it. In the painting, the scene on top of the mountain is illumined and magnificent. There's beautiful greenery. It looks like it's flourishing. But below, at the bottom of the mountain, there's a dark scene. It's a chaotic Scene. It's a scene of quarreling, a scene of, of unbelief. And at the center of it all, there's a demonized boy and a desperate father. And in all this, we see what we see in this painting is not just a celebration of the glory of Christ and his transfiguration, but of the grace of Christ and coming down into the difficulty and disaster of where life is lived for us as broken, sinful, suffering humanity. That's what we see in our passage this morning. So, it's with great joy that I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy for the word of our God as Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit as I seek to explain and proclaim and apply your word. And you anoint me with his grace and power. And we all need the Holy Spirit to have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to trust. And so would you fill us all with the Spirit and with the power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As we've been making our way through Mark, we've recently come to Mark chapter 8. And we saw what we called the, uh, the, the watershed moment of Mark's gospel. The moment, the event of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, as well as the clear proclamation of Jesus that a cross awaits him in Jerusalem. And with that watershed moment, we've had a shift in focus, a shift of of theme of sorts. The previous eight chapters of Mark's gospel were, were centrally focused on the identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And with that now well established, Mark sort of shifts focus to show us that this Christ is the Christ of the cross. That he came to suffer, he came to give his life for the sake of his people, that he came to be betrayed and killed at the hands of sinful men so that he might atone for the sins of his people, ransoming them from the power of sin and Satan and from the wrath of God. But then there are also more minor themes throughout these next eight chapters that run kind of parallel with that main theme. And and we're seeing one of them in the middle of chapter 8 here, uh, since the middle of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, and we'll continue to see it on till the end of chapter 10 here, and that is the theme of discipleship. What it means to be a disciple of Christ. What it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. How to live as a disciple, a follower, a a student, an apprentice of Christ. And that double theme here is front and center for us this morning as we look at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. We see here something central about the mission and identity of Jesus as the Messiah, And we see something essential to a life of discipleship, namely faith and dependence upon Christ as the Messiah. And so we're going to take a look at this text this morning under two headings. First, what we discover about Jesus, and second, what we discover about faith. First, what we discover about Jesus. What do we discover about Jesus here? And immediately, what we see about Jesus, as you look at verses 14 to 19 here, is that he draws near to the needy. He draws near to the needy. As as we consider our passage this morning, we can't consider it apart from the transfiguration which came just before. 
There we saw the glory of Jesus revealed. His divine nature was made evident. His supremacy above all was declared by the Father. He received the glorious affirmation of his Father being the beloved Son whose glory outstrips all. And Peter had the bright idea of camping out, setting up some tents, making a camping trip out of it. He didn't want to let this moment pass by too quickly. And yet you see here, Jesus refused to dwell there long, didn't he? He refused to set up camp in this glorious moment because he had a mission to accomplish. He had a people to serve. There were needs to attend to, and so he came down the mountain. And what a scene he comes to. If you look at it, it's chaotic. Beginning with verse 14, there's a great crowd surrounding the, the, the nine other disciples who were left at the bottom of the mountain. There were scribes, and the scribes were quarreling with Christ's disciples. In verse 14, when the crowd sees Jesus, they, they all run up to him in a flurry of activity, and, and Jesus begins his investigation of the scene here. In verse 16, he asks the scribes, why are you arguing with my disciples? Your beef is with me, you know, come at me, bro. It seems here that the, the scribes who were so prone to try to argue with Jesus and who were constantly put in their place by him, saw their golden opportunity in his absence. They saw these vulnerable disciples without him there, and so they, they, they thought that they would take this opportunity to discredit Christ by discrediting his students. And it seems that the disciples may have been giving them some material to work with here. We find out more as, as a man from the crowd interjects. He's not even, he doesn't even give the scribes an opportunity to answer Jesus' question here. It's, such, you know, it's, it's apparent. Of a child in distress. You know, all pretense and politeness goes out the window. This, he has a, a child that's in danger. He doesn't care what these, you know, authorized theologians of the day are gonna say in response to Jesus. His child needs Jesus. And so this man speaks up in verses 17 and 18, and he tells Jesus about what started the whole debacle in the first place. He says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So his son is mute and deaf. And what's more is that he seems to, to have what we call today epilepsy. He has severe seizures. And this, this muteness, this deafness, this epilepsy we see here is not merely a medical condition. It's the result of demonic oppression and possession. Of course, that's not to say that all muteness and deafness and epilepsy is the result of this kind of demonization we see here. We've seen in Mark so far, Jesus heal people with medical issues without demonization as its cause. But here, this specific affliction and this specific situation is the result of an evil spirit. A demon, a demon overtakes this boy. It takes control of his body. It throws him to the ground into violent fits. And in, in verse 22, we see that in these violent fits, the boy is often cast into fire or water as the demon attempts to kill the boy by drowning him or burning him. And in this, we see something of the destructiveness of evil, don't we? Satan and, and those fallen angels in league with him are destructive. They hate humanity. They hate divine image bearers. And, and, and we see not only their destructiveness, but their power. They're so powerful. 
This demon takes utter control of this boy. This boy is helpless to resist it. The father is helpless to to help him. The disciples are helpless to do anything for them. We know that the, the disciples had been commissioned back in Mark 6 by Jesus to cast out demons. And Luke's account of the disciples' deliverance ministry says that they rejoice in the, in the fact that they had power over evil spirits. They've, they've cast out demons before. They've done it before, but this was different. This was beyond their ability. They've encountered something beyond their capability in their strength. And, see, and in this, we see that everyone in this situation, in this story, is needy, helpless, unable But Jesus, not content to stay on the mountain of glory, comes down and draws near to those in need. He didn't stay on the mountain to be served by Peter and the disciples with tents and monuments to him and to this event. He came down to serve. And such is the gracious heart and disposition of Jesus. His heart is drawn out to us in our need and in the mess of our life. His heart is drawn to us in our sin and suffering. And we see this ultimately in the incarnation, don't we, of which this seems to be a picture. You see how how, uh, in Christ's glory and the affectionate affirmation of the Father in the transfiguration, we actually get a glimpse of heaven in eternity past. The, the, the veil between heaven and earth becomes pretty thin here. And we see something of the glory of the Father and the Son in eternity past. They've had glorious communion and joy and love together forever. And, and yet the Son came and stepped into our humanity. He came and descended into our chaotic, broken, sinful, suffering world. He drew near to us in our need. Because such is the gracious heart of Christ. His heart is drawn out to us in our need. His compassionate heart moved him toward our need and sin and suffering. And this is one way we can say that Christ is fundamentally different from us, can't we? With us, neediness is often a liability in relationships, isn't it? We can be calculating We're often frugal with our time, our energy, our resources. We're we're always doing our best to ensure that we feel we're not putting more into relationships than we're getting out of them. And the moment that the sacrifice becomes too much and the neediness becomes too demanding, we, we are tempted to withdraw, but not Jesus. Your neediness is not a liability to him. Your sin, which he knows better than you do, does not cause him to want to keep his distance. Your suffering and misery does not tempt him to aloofness. No, in fact, because of his great love for us, our need, our sin, our suffering causes his heart to throb with grace and compassion all the more. And so he draws near to those in need, those in sin, those in suffering. He draws near. It's what took him down the mountain. That's what led him to come in the incarnation, and his heart is still the same toward us today. Then we also discover here that Jesus is able to deliver the needy. He doesn't just come to us in his gracious descent. He 
is also gloriously able to do something about our sad predicament of sinful, broken humanity. And he does do something about it. This evil spirit was so powerful, these individuals oppressed by it, so powerless, but Jesus is not. And his, his ability here seems to be an important uh, focus in this passage, doesn't it? Which almost makes it feel like it should belong to the first half of Mark. But here we are. You notice here how much Jesus' ability and human, everybody else's inability seems to come up in the passage. Verse 18, the disciples were not able to cast the demon out. Verse 29, he tells them why they could not cast the demon out. In verse 22, the father says, if you can do anything, and Jesus, incredulous at the statement, responds, if you can, it seems this man doesn't fully understand who he's talking to here. If he can. This is the God of the universe. This is the one who, in the beginning, spoke the universe into existence. This is the one, Hebrews 1.3, who upholds the universe merely by the word of his power, by the, the words of his voice, by the sound of his voice. Everything you see is upheld. That is infinite power. It has been on display in Mark, in Mark 1. He healed the leper. In Mark 2, he restored the paralytic. In Mark 3, he caused the man with a withered hand, his hand to be stretched out in strength and wholeness. He calmed the storm in Mark 4. He cast out a legion of demons and healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and raised the dead all in Mark 5. In Mark 6, he miraculously multiplied bread and fish and walked on water. He's healed deaf, dumb, blind people. He's cast out demon after demon, all of which shows that there, is absolute, there are absolutely no limitations to what Jesus can do. He can do anything. And he demonstrates that again right here in our passage as this demon, which all have been so powerless against so far, is cast out by his command. In verses 20 to 25, they bring the boy to Jesus. That's the best thing the disciples did so far. And when the spirit possessing this little boy sees Jesus, the boy goes into a violent seizure, and Jesus merely says a word. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And on the spot, at the sovereign word of Christ, the boy is delivered from this oppressive evil and Jesus demonstrates his glorious ability to save and deliver. I think there's a word of comfort here to any and all who would think themselves beyond the saving power and grace of Jesus this morning. And sometimes I, I, I talk with people who think themselves the exception to the rule that Jesus is, is able in, in, in to save and even desires to save others, but that they themselves are too sinful, too broken, too messed up, too complicated, too hopeless. And if that's you, this passage says something to you this morning, that Jesus delights in demonstrating his glory and grace by saving hopeless causes like ourselves. His grace and power is precisely for those who can't get their act together. In fact, his grace is most glorified in saving the worst of sinners. He loves doing that. 
If you don't hear anything else from me this morning, hear that. No one is too far gone for Jesus. You are not too far gone for Jesus. There's no evil, no sin, no wickedness so powerful that he cannot deliver us still. If you would have pardon from sin and power to overcome sin, it is yours for the taking for free in Christ Jesus. And he shows us how in this passage this morning. Look at verses 26 and 27. How does Jesus deliver us? Death and resurrection. Look at it. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And many have pointed out not just the contrast, but the parallels between the transfiguration and our passage this morning. The most significant in my mind being that in the, transfigura- in the transfiguration, we see a son who is the apple of his father's eye, but who will go on to deliver his people through death and resurrection. And how in our passage this morning, we see a son who is the apple of his father's eye, who is delivered from evil through death and resurrection. This son's death and resurrection is foreshadowing the son's death and resurrection, which will come at the end of Mark. You can see here that this story is a microcosm of the great story of Christ's deliverance for us all is broken, sinful humanity. All of us, as we've already seen in Mark, are under the oppression of Satan. In sin, apart from Christ, all of us are blinded by Satan. All of us are slaves of and controlled by sin and evil apart from Christ's redeeming work. But Christ steps in, draws near to deliver us from our otherwise hopeless situation. And he does it through his own death and resurrection as the Son of God. In his death and resurrection, he triumphs over Satan and all those demons in league with him and takes us back from under Satan's oppressive reign. In his death and resurrection, he pays the penalty we deserve because of our sins. In his death and resurrection, he inaugurates a new creation and makes us new creations, so freeing us from the power of Satan's grip that he previously had on our lives. In this passage demonstrates for us that Christ is gloriously able to deliver and he delights in doing so. All we must do is come to him in faith. Which brings us to our second heading this morning. What do we discover about faith? Faith, this passage shows us, is essential to discipleship. You you can't be a disciple of Jesus without faith. You can't be a student of the master unless you first trust the master. And this passage drives that home for us. Faith is an important theme here. It comes up again and again in verse 19. Jesus speaks of this faithless generation, or as the CSB translates, this is this unbelieving generation. And then the father seems to think that there's limits to what Jesus can do. He tells the father of this demonized boy 
that there are no limitations of what Christ can do. Any limitations they encounter happen as a result of the Father's belief or unbelief. Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. The man responds by saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. Belief, faith, trust is an important theme here. And thus one that we must duly consider. And among the many important truths we discover about faith in our passage, chief among them is that faith is Christ-focused. Faith is Christ-focused. Look at 19. When Jesus comes upon this chaotic situation, finds out what's going on, he, he cries out with lament, O faithless generation, O unbelieving generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And they're saying he's just so lonely and exhausted. He's growing weary with constantly encountering utter unbelief in his generation. And notice here, he's not singling out anyone in particular. He says generation. That's pretty comprehensive. It's the whole lot of them. And perhaps we should clarify here when we talk about this unbelieving generation is that almost all of them Believe in some way, shape, or form. You should clarify what faith is here, perhaps. Take note that everyone present in this crowd likely believed in the existence of God. Everyone. The disciples, the Father, the crowd, the scribes, they all believed in God. Furthermore, all of them believed in Christ in some way. I mean, he was standing right in front of them, so it's not really that difficult. He's demonstrated to them again and again his power to heal and deliver. The disciples have confessed him as the Christ. The father evidently possessed enough faith to bring at least his son to Jesus. And yet, as James 2.19 tells us, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons believe in God. Demons believe that Jesus is the Christ. Demons fully believe that Jesus can heal and deliver people. But that still isn't true saving biblical faith. True biblical saving faith is not just intellectual assent to certain truths. It's not just agreeing with what the Bible says. True faith involves personal trust. True faith involves trusting Christ and entrusting yourself to him. You can intellectually agree with all the truths we find in the Bible and yet trust in something else entirely for your identity, your significance, your redemption, your life, your salvation. And it seems here that in some way, in some measure, this crowd was unbelieving that way. The disciples, their unbelief was made evident. They weren't able to cast out the demon. Some way, shape, or form, they, they, they were operating with some measure of self-reliance instead of dependence upon Christ. The father of the boy, he has some semblance of belief, but we can also see his doubt here. He wonders if Christ can even deliver the boy. He seems more focused on the size of his circumstances than he does on the Christ. Which is something that we can all tend to struggle with. We can all tend to be more focused on our jobs, our wallets, our families, our problems, our illnesses, the threats, the circumstances, the debts, or whatever, than we are the Christ. The crowd, as we've already seen in Mark, they're amazed by Jesus. They run up to him in utter amazement, but, but, but they don't trust him. 
seem to be there much for the same reason a crowd of people might gather around Joe Burrow while he's at Chipotle or McDonald's. I want to see this famous man. I want to see a spectacle. Some of us can tend to find Jesus attractive, interesting, even compelling to a certain degree, but that's about where it stops. And the scribes are the worst of them all. They they credit Jesus' power and strength to the devil and demons. They think Christ is in league with Satan. None of these people are looking to the Christ in faith and trust. In in Raphael's painting, it's, it's alluring. In this chaotic scene down below, you see a large crowd of people arguing, quarreling, snarling at each other. You see a little demonized boy with a father who has a face of desperation. And on top of the mountain, there's Elijah. And Elijah's looking at them all, trying to catch their attention, as it were, and he's pointing to Jesus. He is the object of saving faith. He is the answer to the entire situation. If you would have deliverance from evil, if you would have power in ministry and mission, if you would have rest for your soul, turn to Jesus. Look To Jesus, focus the eyes of your heart on Jesus. In other words, place your faith in Jesus. Faith is the means by which we take hold of Christ. Trust, depending on Christ, is the means by which we receive all of his benefits. Belief in him is the means by which we walk in his footsteps in discipleship. Faith is necessarily focused on Christ or else it's not biblical saving faith at all. Then second, we also discover here that faith can be frail. You already mentioned that the father has his doubts. He wonders if Jesus can heal this boy at all. He's he's not so sure. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus tells him, all things are possible for him who believes. And, and, And hear me, that's not an encouragement to some sort of vague belief. Like We we live in a generation now where even Christians sometimes Commend faith as a virtue in and of itself. Faith in in anything. Just believe. In what? I don't know. But in the Bible, faith is never a virtue by itself because you can have faith in the wrong thing. Faith is as good or worthless as its object. You might trust that pew you're sitting in, but if it's cracked and broken and crumbling, your faith is not well-founded. Faith is as good or worthless as its object. It is the object of your faith which is most important. Thus, here Jesus is not encouraging this man to some sort of agnostic belief in something somewhere out there, some higher power. He's he's not even just encouraging the man to have faith in what this boy will be healed. He's calling the man to faith in himself. He is faith's rightful object. And the man responds with one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. It's so honest, so vulnerable, so humble, desperate. I believe, help my unbelief. This man, to his commendation, does believe. His his faith is weak, his faith is frail. It's, It's like it's barely flickering. He's like a bruised reed or a faintly burning Wick, he's, he's barely hanging on. He's plagued with doubts. He's, he's struggling to trust the Christ in front of him. Belief and, and unbelief are simultaneously on the scales of his heart, and it feels to him like unbelief is 
dangerously close to outweighing belief. And you might feel like that sometimes. You come to church, you interact with people in your community group, you hang out with other church members, and sometimes you feel like belief can seem to come so easy to to so many other people, but it doesn't feel like it comes so easily to you. You often lack assurance. Doubts often creep in. They sometimes haunt your mind and heart at night when you lay your head down. Sometimes when you pray, it feels like your, your prayers are not going any higher than the ceiling. You might even cross your fingers at certain points when we confess the Apostles' Creed together. You'll be encouraged to see here that this man's frail faith didn't cancel Christ's blessing for him. All of us on this side of glory carry vestiges of unbelief in us, sometimes more than others. All of us struggle with doubt. Sometimes all of us at times can feel like our faith is wearing thin, like it's frail. But the good news is that Christ is strong whether or not our faith is weak. One Puritan pastor once put it, your faith, whether your faith is weak or your faith is strong, you're still saved by the same strong Christ. It's kind of like when you see kids getting into a swimming pool. Love watching it. it shows something of you know, their personalities. And some kids just don't hesitate at all. They get their swimsuit on, they run straight for the pool and jump right in, enjoy themselves and play in the water. Others are are sometimes so trepidatious, so slow, so seemingly unsure, they kind of dip a toe in. They don't jump in, they go down the stairs. They never go too deep, either because they can't swim or they're just not that sure of their swimming capabilities. But the reality is that both are in the pool. And similarly, whether your faith is bold and certain, a jump in the deep end kind of faith, or yours is a trembling, trepidatious, shallow kind of faith, you're both in Christ, and Christ is the basis for your salvation, for your deliverance, for your forgiveness, for your peace with God, for your eternal life. And so whether your faith is frail or flourishing, you're as secure as Christ is able. We've already seen the good news that he's gloriously able to save to the uttermost. And lastly, we can't leave it there, partly because the text doesn't, and partly because even while those with weak little faith are still saved by a big, strong Christ, we don't want to have little faith. We don't want to have weak faith. We want to increasingly shed those vestiges of unbelief still left in our hearts and grow in faith and trust in Christ. And so look at me last at how faith can grow. The Christian with weak faith is no less saved and secure than the Christian with strong faith. But the Christian with strong faith feels more secure. 
He enjoys his salvation all the more. He's more assured of his security and salvation. He's more fruitful because of that in mission and ministry. He he prays more confidently. He, He probably sees more answers to his prayers. He's more fruitful in the Christian life. He takes more risks in the Christian life. He's more obedient in the Christian life. And so while I hope this message encourages those of you with weak faith, I also hope it exhorts you to seek to grow in faith. And we see the way to grow in faith in this man's example here. As he appeals to Christ. The father of this little boy shows us the exact path to how to grow in our faith. He cries out to Christ and prays that Christ would help and overcome his unbelief. He says, I believe, help my unbelief, overcome my doubts, help put my unbelief to death so that my faith not be frail and weak, but strong and sturdy. Not only in the man's example here, but we see in Christ's instruction as well. Look at verse uh, verse 29. On the heels of this miracle, when Jesus and the disciples Get to someplace private, they ask him to explain why they couldn't cast out this demon from this boy. And and look at what he says to them. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He he seems to prescribe here a a regiment of prayer and possibly fasting. Some of the scrolls say. Both in connection to growth and faith and dependence and trust in Christ. And it's for good reason. One commentator says of this very verse here, the disciples' failure is an occasion for encouragement to more prayer, implying that more time in prayer and fellowship with God leads to growth and faith. Here's what it means. Prayer is one of the divinely prescribed means by which our faith in Christ grows. It is an instrument, it is a tool in his hands through which he works to grow and strengthen our faith. In fact, to go further, I should say it's one of the most important means and instruments by which our faith in Christ grows. If you want strong faith, here's what you do. You pray. You devote yourself to a life of prayer. You pray and you keep on praying. Faith is nourished by prayer. If belief were energy, prayer would be calories. If belief were a muscle, prayer would be exercise. Without prayer, faith withers, it atrophies. With prayer, faith flourishes. You can be sure there's no such thing as strong belief in someone who fails to pray. You may say, well, it can't be that simple. You just pray. Really? I mean, like, can you think of a person, a believer, who has strong faith and yet they do not have a devoted prayer life? If you want strong faith, if you want to grow in trusting Christ, if you want a bold faith that is fortified with assurance, doubtless in trial, fruitful in mission and ministry, if you want a faith that takes risks and withstands temptation, if you desire a faith that grips the arm of divine omnipotence, that calls down blessings and and achieves wonders, 
If you would have a faith that makes your heart rest while the world rages around you in chaos, like it did for the disciples here in Mark 9, you must be a person who prays and who keeps on praying. Because faith is nourished by prayer. If you want strong faith, pray and keep on praying. Today, as Brian already mentioned, is the first Sunday in our month of prayer. There are prayer books available in the Great Hall. There are liturgies there for morning and evening prayer in that booklet. I would invite you to use them, to devote yourself this month to praying morning and evening when you wake up in the morning and before you go to sleep at night, to come to community group and pray weekly with your community group, to to come and pray weekly at the Wednesday prayer walks at noon here at the building. I'd invite you to join the pre-service prayer meeting at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning. I would invite you to intentionally devote yourself to prayer, to being a praying person this month, and at the end of the month, to keep on being a praying person. And I invite you to do this, and then just watch what the Lord does. If If you don't believe me that having strong faith That prayer is essential to growing and developing strong faith. Try it out. Just test what I'm telling you right now. Try it out. I dare you. Just see what the Lord will do with your heart, with your faith, with your trust. Even if it feels like you are a person of weak faith, like your faith is just little embers, slightly glowing in the dark. If you would see the Lord fan them into flame, I invite you to invest your heart and your time in praying to day to day, setting the eyes of your heart on Christ in prayer, taking your needs to him, pouring out your heart to him, as we said earlier. As we've seen, he delights in drawing near to needy people such as us. He delights in drawing near to us and growing our weak, trembling faith. He's gloriously able to do so. So the invitation is to come to him in faith. Come to him in prayer. Focus on him. And grow. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. Cause us to be a people of deep and abiding faith. When we are weak, you are strong. We are sure of that. And and so we're glad. We pray that you would also strengthen our faith. Help us be more assured, more confident in you, in Christ. We pray that that would take place even as we come forward to the Lord's table now. As you seal this word upon our hearts by the bread and the cup that we partake in. May it be to us communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, with his body and blood, so that we may grow and deepen in faith, so that we may rejoice in you, the God of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.